In mid-January 1959, a group of students and recent graduates from Ural Polytechnic Institute departed from the city of Sverdlovsk, Russia, on an expedition into the northern Ural Mountains. Each member of the group was extremely experienced in lengthy ski tours and mountain expeditions, and would all earn the distinguished Grade 3 hiking certification, the highest obtainable in the country, upon completing their journey. When the hikers hadn't arrived home as expected, a search and rescue mission began. Over the span of the next few months, a horrifying discovery would be made. The bodies of all nine hikers would be found scattered in various states of struggle within a mile of their last campsite, some with fatal blunt force trauma to their head or chest, many missing shoes and clothing, and another was even missing her tongue. The prosecutor at the time closed the investigation, stating that the hikers died of an unknown, compelling force, a vague determination that has left room for many theories in the past 60 years, ranging from UFOs to government conspiracy. What caused these experienced hikers to flee their only shelter into total blackness sub-zero temperatures, and imminent death that night, which would be their last. You're listening to Creep It Real, and today we're discussing the Dyatlov Pass incident. Creep It Real is a weekly podcast where we present our theories of the subjects we cover based on our interest and research. Some material may be graphic and disturbing, so proceed with caution. All right, guys, here we are yet again. We're covering Dyatlov Pass. We had to take like a little break from the just murder. Yeah, we just needed a little recovery week where while this does have, you know, nine deaths in it, it took place in 1959 and it's a little easier to not feel so just completely wrecked by the story. So, but that that being said, we're not Russian and I don't think either of us have studied Russian, so there's going to be probably some mispronunciations going on today. Uh, you know, giggles. I'm going to try to do the best I can. I'm sure Shy is going to try the best she can. <laughs> we apologize in advance for hack jobbing these names. Yeah. You know, we're going to try our best, and it's the, the story itself is still super, super interesting. And I, to be honest, learned a ton of new information when I was reading for this uh, episode because I thought I already knew what happened. And then it turns out I found out really soon on that what I thought was not the case at all. So we're going to go ahead and start it off. As you heard in the intro, this happened in 1959 in Russia. It was at the height of the Cold War, and the country was undergoing a post-Stalin softening where the arts and sports and education were all becoming readily available and celebrated. And it was just kind of like a time of exploration. And a lot of students, whenever they weren't studying, would explore the loosely charted territory of of the the land and so there was like a lot of wilderness stuff a lot of hiking a lot of wilderness stuff a lot of you know uh, there was a lot of hiking clubs a lot of uh, wilderness exploration hiking clubs were extremely popular and in russia they call experienced hikers or mountaineers tourists so that's definitely different than what we consider tourists so there was a group of nine students they were planning to hike into the ural mountains they were all grade two certified and this hike that they were going on at the time of year 
was the most difficult hike that you could do. They were going to be earning the Distinguished Grade 3 Hiking Certification when they completed it, and that was the highest that they could obtain in the country. It required 186 miles of ground to be covered. A third of it had to be in challenging terrain. The minimum duration for the trip had to be 16 days, and no fewer than eight of those days had to be in uninhabited regions. At least six of those days had to be in a tent, and once they were done with this, it would allow them to teach other hikers as masters of the sport. So this is no nature walk. No. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, this isn't like a day hike. No. serious so these are skilled individuals right and if you've never been on a like a trip before where you're living out of a tent and a backpack like the the efforts of these people is not to undermine no way and, and we're talking russia in the middle of winter <laughs> so that, oh, that that's adding no. to the degree of difficulty here all right so we have the group here and we're going to go over a couple the members, and this is where the names kind of get butchered, so please excuse me. So we have Igor Dyatlov. He's 23 years old, and he's the group leader, so he's fairly young. And he was pretty famous at his school's hiking club for technical know-how. Um, everybody wanted to join in under his wing and go on this trip under his leadership. He was busy studying radio engineering, and he typically bought handmade shortwave radios. So on this trip, because they needed a pack light, they didn't take any of the receivers because they could be you know, hundreds of pounds, and that's just extra weight to carry around. If you've ever been hiking up a mountain and you're going for like multiple days, the last thing that you want to do is put items in your pack that are hundreds of pounds. But yeah, you know, like you want to pack as light as you possibly can because it it is a beating. It's heck on your body, first of all, and then you add the weight of like even your essentials and it can be exhausting but um okay so his job was really was to ensure that they packed the essentials so they couldn't stop for supplies because you know you're hiking up a mountain so there's no general stores to stop in and you know buy some beef jerky so it was really you know he was he was definitely the leader and he was the one looking out for these individuals then we have Sasha who was a 37 year old acquaintance of Igor's and he was a local hike instructor he was a World War II vet and he joined the group because another one had dropped out on the last minute so we have Zena she was a 22 year old woman she was one of the only two women that was on the trip she was the designated diary keeper so they had a diary that they would catalog they had to catalog all their they did it for fun but it, it it's part of that certification. You have you have to document your trip. And then there was Yuri Doroshenko. He was a 21-year-old. There's about seven Yuris on this trip. So I believe that we use Doroshenko as his name sometime in the story. I don't really expect that everybody is going to remember all of these people individually, but we're still going to give you the cast of characters here. So there's Leuda, who was a 20-year-old woman. She was one of the only two women again. There was Alexander Kolivatov, a 24-year-old male. Then there was Yorgi, a 23-year-old old man. Rustic was another 23-year-old. And then Kolya was the last member of the group. He was 23 as well. So all of these people were going to the, either had recently graduated or were going to the Ural Polytechnic Institute. And most of them were studying some sort of engineering, but their hobby was to hike. And so they were part of this hiking club. And this was, you know, these were some of the most experienced hikers at that school. 
So on the way up the mountain, they stopped at a few different small towns before they reached the end of civilization. They stopped in a mining town where they gave a like a little kind of a presentation to some little kids at their school. And the kids just like went nuts for them. They were just so excited and they wanted them all to stay with them. And then they stayed a night with some woodcutters and talked about poetry and love. Um, They were just really like, as well as being explorers, they were just super intellectual as well. So they were all extremely intelligent and well-read and were just taking advantage of this this time in Russia called the Thaw is what it was called. So at the last minute, one of the hikers that was with the group, Yuri Yordan, had to leave the group due to chronic rheumatism and he had like terrible back pain. He had hoped he was going to be able to make it through, but he could not. So at the very last minute, the very last town that they were in, he had to leave them because he just knew he wasn't going to be able to make it up the mountain. It's for the benefit of the group. Like if you if you are dealing with something that, like an injury or... Yeah. Your group wants to be as efficient and strong as possible. Right. So he... And this is, like we said, this is extremely difficult so he just was like i gotta turn back little did he know that was gonna end up saving his life lucky for him so it's safe to say that Zeno was the primary person in charge of keeping the diary. And throughout history, we, we see that, you know, there's always someone that journaling their adventures because that's how history books were written. So one of her first diary entries was on the group's way to the mountain. She quote, She's quoted as saying, I wonder what awaits us on this hike. Will anything new happen? So it's a little bit creepy. It's a little ominous. Yeah, but anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. No, it's okay. The hikers were due back from the expedition on February 13th, but they did not arrive as planned. On February 16th, the students began arriving back at the Ural Polytechnic for the new semester. And this is the school. Families of the hikers were growing increasingly concerned, as they should. So my husband is an avid hunter and... Uh, a lot of times he likes to go by himself, which is against my wishes, but you do, like, as soon as he's not back or has phone called me by the time he has specified, I am, like, on it with, you know, his friends because he always lets them know hit the location, but it's a big deal when someone's out in the woods with little to no, I mean, even today we have cell phones and whatnot, but... You always want to have a plan and make sure that there's always a set date and time to which these people are supposed to be back or contact you. Yeah. So so the families and friends were growing very concerned, and initially the school wasn't worried. They thought they had just been delayed up on the mountain. So by February 17th, the school admin gives in to the pressure and sends a telegram to the first village outside of the mountains. The response from the town, the Dietlof group, did not return. Yeah, so so this town is going to be the last town that they are going to stop in before they go up the mountain, and then it should have been the first town that they came to after coming down the mountain, and that town sent the school a response that said they, they hadn't come back yet. So obviously the families were right to be concerned about the delay. Obviously it wasn't just, you know, either somebody was injured or something terrible happened. They got yeah, something. So the, a formal search party was assembled on February 20th. And Ivdel is the city that I'm probably butchering that is right outside the mountain. And the prosecutor's office there ordered a criminal investigation into the missing hikers. So a man named Yevgeny Maslinikov mm-hmm, uh, was the hiking consultant to all the clubs in the area. And he had signed off on these hikers route. And he came back saying that they could not have lost their way. And so he said the situation was definitely critical because he said it was not a matter of them getting lost it was a matter of something something happened so 
they sent the search party out. There was two men that initially found the tent and they found it on the eastern slope of the mountain at the height of 1,079 feet. There was an ice axe sticking out of the snow at the front of the tent and a half-buried flashlight was there also. So the entrance was partially snowbound and once they got inside of the tent, there was a layer of coats and backpacks and blankets that lined the bottom edge for insulation. At the south end of the tent, there was over a half dozen ski boots and most of their their items were stowed away, but there were a few things that were out. That was a camera, there was a can of money, the diary sat out, but there were no bodies, no people, nothing. Um, the stove of that they used that they would usually set up in the middle of a tent was not put together. And there was an open flask of frozen cocoa sitting out on a table. There was a cloth napkin with some sliced ham. And so with the exception of the collapsed entrance, they said that you would have thought the campers were all out collecting wood. And it didn't seem to be that anybody had actually abandoned the shelter. But the collapsed entrance gave them some pause. There was no discernible tracks for the search dogs to follow due to the slopes, incline, and wind. Downslope 20 yards away, there were nine sets of footprints, some bare foot extending a half mile towards River Valley and they split into parallel paths and then merged back together. So we have them kind of going out and in. Yeah, like separating in a group. and then coming back together. Yeah. There were two men who were looking for a campsite for the searchers and they discovered a fire pit that was about a mile away from the tent. It wasn't a proper campsite. Uh, they said, there, so there were native people that lived in the area, the Monsies, and they knew that they did not make this fire because it was just a very like crude little tiny fire they were looking around a little bit and they discovered that there was a knee sticking out of the snow right by the fire pit and then they discovered after they dug out some of the snow that there were two bodies laying just north of the pit these were yuri dorshenko and and yorgi who i'm not even going to attempt to say his last name so his name was yorgi no jackets no pants they had One of them had one leg of long underwear torn off, bare feet, and snow wedged between his toes. The other was face down with his arms under his head like a pillow. The other one was face up and his mouth and eyes had been eaten, they believe, by a bird. Um, Both of their clothes were brutally shredded. Pieces were missing, and it looked like someone had cut them up, and the skin that was exposed was dark and discolored. So that's not a great scene that we have just come across. You know, there's two dead 23-year-olds laying in the snow. On February 13th, a Monsi tribal elder joined the search with his German shepherd, and they discovered a body under the snow with, with its arms crossed over its chest in a seemingly defensive posture. It was clutching a birch sapling, had no hat, no gloves, no shoes, no jacket. It was just wearing socks, and the watch that this person was wearing stopped at 531, and that was Igor Dyatlov, who was dead by himself clutching that birch sapling. Soon after that, a, a second dog found 100 yards from that birch where Igor was. They discovered a woman's body laying on her right side. She was face down with her arms twisted beneath her body and her face was dark with dried blood. Her right leg was bent beneath her as if she was in mid-climb before she collapsed. Again, she wasn't wearing shoes, just socks. And this was Xena. So we have these bodies and they're like super aged and worn and it's mysterious as to how they got this way and it's honestly really creepy. I mean, to discover a body like this would uh, it would kind of take me back a little bit take me aback yeah whatever you want to yeah it's definitely you know just they're all just kind of scattered and you know as like 
experienced hikers, they they are supposed to stay together as much as possible and not separate off on their own, especially. Yeah. So imagine what's going through your mind. You find these bodies with white hair, this aged skin, missing body parts. Like, well, I personally, there has been some like thoughts about what's causing this these issues, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, definitely. Lots of different theories. Right now, anyway. Early theories made by Maslinikov, the master of sport who was who was head in the search in the absence of the prosecutor, sent a telegram to Ivdel. The theory was that wind swept hikers down slope. That's what the telegram had read. Ivdel sent back, why were things left in the tent if the people were swept by the wind? Very good point. Makes yeah. sense, right? <laughs> yes. Doesn't make a lot of sense that wind would have blown them, but kept the tent. People, but, yeah. Uh, search team camps under what they called Boot Rock were about a mile from Hallitchall Mountain. They sent a telegram to, to Ivdel that read, Why whole group left tent half-dressed? We don't know yet. Absolutely no notion. That sounds so Charlie Day. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, they had to shorten it. So yes, the searchers right now are just completely confused as to why these experienced people who were very prepared for this trip abandoned the only shelter that they had without any clothes on practically for when you're considering that it was sub-zero temperatures in the middle of the night. So very confused at this point. Um, On on February 28th, the first prosecutor arrived. He was extremely inexperienced for this kind of situation and was almost immediately replaced by a more experienced prosecutor who was Liv Ivanov. Word got back to Sverdslovsk about the bodies being found and the families initially blamed the university for allowing the students to go on such a difficult hike. They additionally thought that the Monsi people should be investigated and who I I spoke about a minute ago. They're the native people of the region. Uh, They thought maybe hikers had had passed on sacred land of theirs and local foresters were adamant that the Monsi were super hospitable, always extremely helpful. Obviously, there were Monsi leaders that were helping conduct this search and rescue mission. The hikers weren't on sacred land and there was just zero evidence to back up anything that would point to the Monsi being in any way involved. And so... The searchers, when they were doing their search for the bodies, they were probing the snow with eight foot probes and even those sometimes weren't reaching all the way to the bottom. They were having to like walk in these lines and going very slow and just thrusting these poles into the ground, into the snow to try to find things underneath it. So it was very laborious and it took a really long time. So Ivanov's uh, initial findings were that the 25 foot cedar tree where the fire pit was found along with the two bodies, that the fire had burned for no more than two hours. There were some broken branches that indicated that one of the men climbed the tree and then maybe he fell while he was cutting some branches off, which was consistent with the scratches and cuts that were found on Doroshenko. There were additional footprints around the fire that suggested that a third person other than Doroshenko and Krivonishchenko uh, were there. And there was firewood and twigs that they had gathered, but they didn't use and they let the fire die. So he was wondering why they let the fire die. That was their only source of heat at the time. So the tent was erected per regulation, although it had been damaged from some tears the integrity on the slope was fully intact and it was clearly rooted securely to account for the strong winds on the side of the mountain. So there was nothing that pointed to the fact that they did anything out of regulation or anything faulty in a way that caused this, this situation to happen. 
Initial speculation on the sequence of events, someone went to pee, got swept away by the wind, and the rest of the hikers went after said person but couldn't get back to the tent. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The searchers find the group's storage shelter near the river with nothing amiss. Everything is by the book. It's regulation to the T. This is where food and reserves were stored for a return trip to lighten their load back up and down the mountain. This reinforced the searchers' beliefs that the hikers stuck religiously to their protocol. Right. So nothing, like like I just said, nothing out of the ordinary or anything that looked like they had done anything wrong whatsoever. On March 2nd, Maslenikov begins to rethink his theory about the wind, which I would hope so because that's silly. And he sent a telegram to the city asking if any type of meteorological rocket probe blew over the incident place on on February 1st. And the reason he sent that telegram was because there was a hiking group that was shadowing the Dyatlov group who had seen a strange celestial phenomenon on in the sky in around February 17th. So this guy awoke to hear his fellow hikers who were preparing breakfast yelling out to him. And he uh, rushed out of the tent in just his socks and saw a large spot in the sky that grew larger. And then there was a, he said there was a large bright star at the center and it appeared to grow and then the whole the whole entire spot moved from northeast to southwest and down and that the light lasted just over one minute and it was as large as a meteor so it was this huge light in the sky that moved in a kind of unnatural way and it happened in mid-February, not quite at the same time, but they thought maybe it could be related. One of this guy's companions was so terrified, he thought another planet was colliding with the Earth. The investigators spoke with other witnesses in Ivdel who saw a similar thing. It was a light so bright that it was awaking people in their houses, so... It wasn't just like a falling star. Yeah, it was. It was definitely uh, serious. I've never seen anything like that before, but um, some some other people may have. So the group, they, in the morning, they would document the events of the day before. So the last day that they, that was documented in their diary was January 31st, and it said that the group set out around 10 a.m. That the weather had worsened immediately, and aggressive wind was blowing from the west. They began to deviate from the river toward the mountain in deep snow and harsh wind. And on February 1st, which was the last day that they were alive, the group took 10 photos and it seemed like their spirits were pretty high. In some of the candid shots, they were they looked really happy and playing around and then, but then some of the other pictures that they took didn't look so happy because they were just documenting the trip and it looked horrible because one of the last pictures was the group skiing in a single file line like into this gray haze that you know is just brutal wind and snow being being blown around and I'm just sure just kind of a nightmare honestly so they set up their camp and were in their tent by about nine o'clock they thought they picked the spot because they thought it would give them the ability to pack up really quickly the next morning and head up the mountain first thing. Unfortunately, where they chose to camp kind of ended up being the reason why this happened in the first place. So there is one last photo that was taken and it looks like maybe the moon. It's just a really dark picture, but there are, have been a lot has been a lot of speculation about what it could be. And that picture itself has fueled a lot of conspiracy theories, but I think it's probably fairly explainable. Anyway, so 
So that is the last day that was documented with their diary or with their photos because they also were taking photos to document the trip. On March 5th, the searchers were probing about a thousand yards from the tent and they found a fifth body, which was Roostick. He was face down with his right leg bent beneath him. His right fist was pulled up towards his chest. He didn't have a jacket on. Um, he, he was wearing several pairs of, of socks, but only one shoe. And he had a ski cap on his head, which kind of um, dispels the wind theory because why his hat would have stayed on his head but you know anyway so he had a ski cap on his head he was lying between Igor and Zena and was oriented as if he was working his way up the slope probably trying to get back towards the tent uh, there was a hollow of encrusted snow near his nose and mouth which suggested that he had been alive for some time after he fell the front of his head was deeply discolored so it appeared that he had sustained a blunt force trauma to his head fallen was alive for a little while and then probably succumbed to hypothermia at this point investigators brought a professional tailor in to examine the cuts at the back of the tent and he determines that the cuts were deliberate and they were cut with precision as if someone had been cutting the tent from the the outside trying to get in like an intruder but who's the heck up on this mountain you know like That would be real scary if that was the case, yeah. A professional criminal expert was brought in to examine the three tears in the back of the tent, and he quickly confirmed they are cuts and not tears. So the cuts were actually made on the inside of the tent, and it took multiple attempts, so there are thin scratches that go beyond the cuts on the inside. So it's not like a, a rip and tear style. They're very clean, concise, intentional cuts. They had originally thought someone was like, coming in from the outside, which like a a Yeti or something. But no, (laughs) they actually cut themselves out of the tent. So if they cut themselves out of the tent, that's got to be pretty serious. Right. So that information in itself suggests that the hikers were escaping their tent in an extreme state of panic. Yeah. Otherwise, they never would have destroyed their shelter as their only shelter. And, you know, it had to have been an emergency. So the families were having trouble getting the bodies for a funeral uh, from the authorities. The regional authorities were super... Super eager to get beyond this incident for some reason. They just, they were acting shady. They, in private talks with the families, they were trying to get them to agree to allow them to bury everyone where they died on the mountain in one mass grave and with like one grave marker. And they told these families that everybody else had agreed to it when that wasn't the case just to get them to do so. But they stood their ground. So eventually the authorities allowed the bodies to be returned for burial back to the families. And But they, they gave them the condition that they couldn't have one large funeral because they were trying to like mitigate the amount of people who attended. So they wanted it to be two separate events on two separate days so that the crowds would be smaller. They just like, essentially it seems like they wanted to pretend like nothing had happened. Yeah. For some reason. So Yeah. Some strange reason. So the officials directed the funeral procession to go the shortest route because publicity was unwelcome at the funeral. This definitely fueled more conspiracy theories and speculation by everyone involved. Witnesses at the funeral actually recognized Soviet police that were dressed in civilian clothing and they were monitoring the crowd. And there's a quote saying that positive they were KGB monitoring events. Yeah, so for some reason, I mean, I don't know, I just don't get it, but for some reason, the Soviet police were so concerned with these funerals that they had people in plain clothes kind of like spying on it. Yeah. And once you hear the way that this kind of pans out, at least the way that I believe it pans out, 
I just don't understand why. I really don't. It, but, you know, I don't really know. I, I don't understand a lot of things the government does, I guess, in, in any country most of the time. So I guess that, you know, who knows? So anyway, there was a second funeral the next day. There were some hikers that were in attendance and they told the family that they witnessed a strange event in the sky, in the mountains, and a sound of strong thunder that came after it with a bright light on the 17th of February, just like all these other people were saying. So here's another another group of hikers that was in the same area that the diet law where they were and they also saw these bright lights that now this one is saying that there was like a strong sound that came with it so this started to kind of fuel speculation that perhaps it was a nuclear missile or something that had come through and the parents had all sorts of ideas about what could have happened to their children and you know nothing that the government was telling them or doing was really helping in the hat at all so prison guards in the area described slow moving orbs that pulsed in the sky for 8 to 15 minutes there were just like an overwhelming amount of witnesses that described these bizarre lights in the vicinity of the mountains where the hikers were but again it was not not quite at the same time. It was weeks later, but still a lot of these people really thought perhaps this had something to do with the hikers' deaths. And Tatiana Dyatlov, Igor's sister, she's quoted as saying he didn't die from snow because they had open caskets in their funeral and it showed that their skin was, like Shai said a little while ago, darkly colored. It was aged. Their hair was white and her brother, she said, was only identifiable by the gap in his teeth that everybody knew so well. Uh, Initially, Ivanov, the prosecutor reiterated students did not die of natural causes and that it had been murder. In mid-March, he was called away to Moscow for reasons he wouldn't disclose, and upon return, he had a pronounced change in his demeanor. It was said by searchers he was not recognizable, no longer mentioned murder or spheres, and often advised investigators to hold their tongues. So, yeah, just another weird strange instance surrounding this whole incident yeah right like the government was just very into it so like i said this was like a really physical taxing like these searchers are having to be in these terrible conditions up in the mountain while they're searching for bodies uh it took months to find all the bodies so there were still four hikers that had not been found and they continued to search for them through march through april and then finally on may 3rd a monsi searcher came across some tree branches that appeared to be cut by a knife in the ravine near a cedar tree and the volunteers started to probe the area and they started to find articles of clothing so they dug a really large hole in the creek bed that was about eight feet deep and 900 square feet they continued digging the next day and they found a male body and this body was pretty unrecognizable because of its location at the creek bed the melting snow and the creek water had accelerated decomposition of his body and face and it was just not good for preserving bodies that's definitely for sure soon after they found the three remaining bodies and the only one that was recognizable was the female Lauda because she was a female. She had a torn sweater that was wrapped around one of her feet, which was really weird. And two of the men that they found were embracing to keep warm. Uh, All four of the bodies, like I said, were lying in like a soup of melting snow and creek water and were at varying levels of decay. Ivanov arrives on May 5th and is quoted as saying, 
If body is not transported immediately to IVDEL, will be decomposed beyond salvageable for proper investigation. The Air Force refused to transport the bodies without zinc coffins due to the rumors of possible exposure to a nuclear missile, so like radiation. So on May 8th, four days after the discovery, the bodies were taken to the mortuary in IVDEL for a forensic exam. So we have Sasha, and his right side of his chest sustained some serious injury. He had he actually had five fractured ribs resulting in severe hemorrhaging inflicted by large force while he was still alive. Colia, there was an impressed fracture of the dome of his skull and base with abundant hemorrhaging. So the injury sustained while alive was by large force. Again, with the large force thing. Yeah. So it sounds kind of scary. So Leuda sustained massive thoracic damage with internal hemorrhaging, including that of her right heart ventricle. Plus she had nine fractured ribs and she was the one who was missing her tongue. The forensic exam concluded all four of these people suffered a violent death. And that in itself had fueled a lot of speculation about how exactly that happened. Obviously that sounds pretty scary when you add to the mix that her tongue was missing and, you know, what is the large force that inflicted these traumatic blows on these people out in the middle of a mountain. Their funeral was held on May 22nd at the military hospital in Svetlovsk. They only allowed the families to attend this one. So the the government um, really, after finding the last four bodies, kind of cracked down on these funerals. They didn't allow a procession at all on this one. And it was only the families and they had to do it at the hospital. So definitely seems sketchy. Yeah. So the Prosecutor Ivanov, he ordered radiological testing of the hikers' organ samples, and those organ samples revealed that there was a presence of a radioactive substance called potassium-40, though this substance was also found in an accident victim, a car accident victim, in the month prior to this this hiker incident. They, they believed it was a naturally occurring substance. Yeah. But the hikers' clothing produced results of other radioactive substances that measured almost two times the standard level at the time for people who were working with radioactive substances. And so you could suppose that it was actually much higher than that initially, being that those clothes were left out and exposed to melting snow and water and probably lessened the levels that were on the clothes. Ivanov, he eventually bowed to pressure to terminate the criminal investigation altogether before he received results from radiological testing. He actually could have applied for a one-month extension, but it would have put pressure on him to bring new conclusions within that month. On May 28th, they closed the case, citing no particular cause of death for the hikers and quoted, unknown compelling force, which sounds epic to me. Really? (laughs) Really scary. It does. The families were outraged, and the only action authorities took was closing the Ural Mountains to hikers for three years. The school fired the hiking club director, and the uni director was reprimanded. Yeah, so they didn't get a lot of answers nor did they like see the justice I guess that they wanted to but it's just yeah. we, it's a weird situation where hearing the death of the hikers was caused by an unknown compelling force that I mean like Shai said earlier like could there be a more ominous <laughs> like that is creepy there were a lot of theories about this so there's like the theories I could probably list more than, than we're going to talk about but the the first theory was the Monsi attack the native people that was definitely never considered to be a legitimate theory by any of the investigators. They were 
60 miles away from the site where this happened and they stayed away from the mountain in general because it was barren and they couldn't really do any hunting on it and they also said that this was not a religious or sacred spot for them in any way and there was just zero evidence that it was a Monsi attack so that is a theory that we can throw out the window the other theory would be avalanche that doesn't make a lot of sense either considering that there was still a tent left with all like all the the items that they had inside there is data regarding the slope of the mountain where they were and it it indicated that it was highly unlikely that an avalanche would take place there due to the slopes run out angle which is what you call the the distance that an avalanche moves on a mountain and there have not been any recorded avalanches there before this or after this and like i said investigators also did not even consider this to be a possibility as we said the tent was mostly intact and it was secured to the ground so not a lot of sense so another theory was high winds uh, the hikers would have had to fling themselves to the high wind one by one so like yeah. <laughs> jumping into the yeah right so pretty unlikely yeah and they would have put shoes on beforehand and they wouldn't have destroyed their shelter given that it's the only thing that kind of meant life or death out there. Right. The wind was powerful enough to blow all nine of the hikers off the mountain, but not the tent or Rustic's hat off his head. So the wind was about 40 miles per hour, but not hurricane force, which is so many four miles per hour or greater. Right. So there's an armed men theory, but the cuts were made from the inside of the tent, and there was only nine footprints found. So there's no tracks of visitors, zero reports of escape prisoners, and they're the only prison was about 50 miles away. So highly unlikely if some escape prisoner trekked 50 miles into this desolate waste of a mountain right now, given it's winter. So those theories never stood. No, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's also the weapons testing theory, which that one is fairly viable because of the bright light event that was in the sky that, but it took place weeks later. So like I said, this, they died on February 1st and the bright lights were reported far and wide 16 days later. So that's not, you know, while it could make sense with given the other details that we learned, it just doesn't seem real likely when they've been dead 16 days and when this took place. So also the radiation that was on their clothing, when it was examined by modern testing, it revealed that the numbers were completely normal. They probably would have been exposed through the water or the atmosphere from nuclear tests that were taking place 85 miles away. So definitely very possible. The the modern testing said that the numbers that they found would have had to been 50 to 100 times stronger than the levels detected to reach dangerous or alarming levels by today's standards. So so actually, the uh, radiation that w- was found on their clothing, when 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 you take a look at it in, in modern times, it's it was actually totally normal and really nothing to be concerned about. So that we can't really point to that as any any sort of a viable reason why they, they died. <laughs> and then one of the last theories that we will mention is the alien theory. And while I was down for that one, man, I was down for it, but then... My yeah, <laughs> we're ready. But as we go a little further, I think it's going to be way more explainable by something that is just logical. And like I said, it's not that I don't believe that there are aliens out there or things of that nature, but I don't think in this case, like, I think it would just be who of us to stick to some logical explanations whenever they're right in front of our face. So anyway, so those are the theories that we're not going to go with here. Well, I mean understandably given the circumstances and these strange occurrences it's easy to think something supernatural had been going on here but again totally explainable here 
Yeah. So some of the explanations for the violent injuries found on the hikers, the bodies were found at the bottom of a ravine. There's a 24-foot-high precipice on one side with an incline of 50 to 60 degrees. So in the darkness, they're walking around. They would have taken a really nasty fall. There's large rocks at the bottom of the ravine, just a few inches under the snow. So that would account for large directional force resulting in blunt force trauma of their injuries. Youch. Yeah. I mean, you think about that, and then you think about falling in this, and then you think about it's dark, and it's extremely cold, Ugh. and you're you're ill-dressed. Like, there's really no coming back from that. No. And, I mean, like, any supernatural event that could have taken place, just that in itself is a nightmare more than you can, you know, imagine. Yeah. The explanation for the missing tongue is actually quite interesting. She was laying face down in the melted snow, and the river over several weeks, the microfauna and water decomposed the fleshiest parts of the body. So totally weird, but explainable by science. And I get a little heebie-jeebies there. As far as the darkened and aged skin, the first thing that could explain that is like a severe sunburn. But there's this Dr. Reed Broser, who's the medical director of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center's advanced response team. She's also an expert in wilderness medicine and hypothermia. And she said that with the altitude, the UV light, and 0% humidity, that the bodies could have been mummified in a short amount of time. So that really does explain why they looked so aged and dark and, you know, their skin kind of shriveled almost. So creepy, but explainable. And you think about it and you ever see someone that's been out and I mean, people come back from hiking Everest with irreversible skin damage and it's not a pretty sight. So no, definitely makes sense. Another interesting fact is that the stove had not been assembled that night so it couldn't have been co2 poisoning in the tent also there was no alcohol found in their blood so it's not like they got drunk and decided to go on a snowbound adventure late in the night. <laughs> yeah shoeless yeah, yeah which i have a funny story about my sister because people do do that because anyway. oh dear <laughs> yeah after retirement Ivanov wrote into a local newspaper that regional communist party instructed him not to pursue the connection with strange lights and hikers' death, saying that, quote, During Cold War, such topics were prohibited to prevent the slightest possibility of disclosing data on missile and nuclear techniques. He set the murder theories aside for the good of his country. He believed that the strange light phenomenon related to the death of the hikers, but also said the investigation showed that Dietlov's case was not related to military. Yeah, so Ivanov, the prosecutor on the case, kind of thought it was UFOs, honestly. He, he, the way he worded it was like, there was the strange light phenomenon was related to the case, and it was unexplainable. You know, he just was really... He really fueled conspiracy speculation about the case because from what he believed when he wrote in that paper, it was like pretty much that it was UFO. It wasn't military test. It was something in some lights in the sky that he just could not explain. Right. Because he just really didn't know, you know? Yeah, but there was no evidence of a rocket test at the beginning of February. The only reported rocket test took place on February 17th and that was what all those people who had seen the orbs and the lights in the sky that was actually what they had seen was a rocket test but there was no evidence that there was one in the beginning of February whenever Dyatlov's group met their end so the author of the book that I read for this research who he studied this case for like years he he met with Russian officials he saw evidence that people haven't seen before he's very well versed on the case and all of its facts 
attacks, and he met with, with a senior scientist and infrasonics group leader at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA, in Boulder, Colorado. This was Dr. Bedard. They discussed something called the Carmen Vortex Street, which is super interesting. If you go look it up on YouTube, you can find some videos that show you a good kind of illustration of what it looks like. But it's an occurrence in fluid dynamics of both liquids and gases. And in aerodynamics of weather phenomena, small air vortices or tornadoes are created when winds of a certain speed hit a blunt object of a particular shape and size. There are geographic masses all over the world that are known to cause these. And when it's lar- when they're really large or revved up at higher speeds, they can reach destruction levels of a F2 tornado. So these destructive vortices are often co- accompanied by the twin danger of infrasonic frequencies. And in addition to infrasound, they can produce audible groans that are often compared to freight trains. So that sounds scary in itself. Okay, so uh, let's talk about infrasonic frequencies for a second, because I really was not that aware. I had heard about them before in cases of where people think that they may be having a haunting. I have heard that there are infrasonic frequencies that certain things can make, like air conditioner units or things like that, that can make you feel this like intense unease. But infrasonic frequencies can be natural or man-made. Only recently are there has there really been a dedicated study of this phenomena. So like I said, Cooling or ventilation systems can cause this, uh, infrasound, wind turbines can, earthquakes, landslides, meteors, tornadoes, and storms are all natural infrasonic frequency creators. And actually, the man-made ones can be used in short distances to like disperse crowds. I know Israel uses them to disperse crowds. They're not good in long distance, but they are effective to make you feel uncomfortable, and so people will just scatter. Hitler actually used them to elicit anger amongst the people that were listening to his speeches. So it was understood years and years and years ago, but not quite as we do now. And at the time of the investigation of this event, they really didn't know anything about this. So it wasn't, they just didn't know. It was this more recent development. So these infrasonic frequencies are inaudible, but they can vibrate the hairs of your inner ears and cause physical impacts such as nausea, ear pain, severe illness that can last days. And it also kind of shakes your surroundings, even though you don't hear anything, and which can be unsettling. The disconnect that it creates between the silence and then the fact that your inner ear sending these signals to your brain can be extremely disruptive to the body and devastating to humans. It can cause psychological disturbances and even suicide. So these like infrasonic frequencies are not or no joke. So Dr. Bedard, he found that the symmetrical dome shape of the mountain summit, which they were climbing, would cause a Carmen Vortex Street. And combined with the proximity of the tense location, these tornadoes would have been screaming right outside of these hikers tents creating an intense discomfort and fear that they could not understand let's say they're all in their tent they hear the winds pick up and they begin to feel vibrations in the ground they hear a roar that passes from one direction to the other they start to feel more vibrations the the tent is vibrating they hear another sound of like a freight train passing from a different direction this time and then the roaring kind of like turns to this horrifying sound and their chest cavities begin to vibrate from the infrasound that's created by the stronger vortex passing by 
and the effects of the infrasound start to be felt by the hikers, which is like fear, panic, trouble breathing as the physiological frequencies are generated. And this Dr. Bedard, he said that he could envision in his mind that this would have been a truly frightening scenario for anyone. I can bet that would be the case. That sounds horrible. I mean, just being out in the wilderness alone is sometimes unsettling. I mean, every little noise that you hear outside of your tent kind of strikes a little bit of fear in your heart. Yeah. So imagine being out here and you hear a freight train going by your tent yeah. and you're having these insane feelings of discomfort and, and anxiety and there's no way to explain it. Right. Like, bleh, no thanks. In 1959, Ivanov did his best that he could with the info available to him. He was faced with baffling circumstances that seemed to point to phenomena beyond understanding. So no wonder he pointed to the orb and the UFOs because what else could it possibly be? I mean, it just, there, he just didn't have the information to be able to explain this. This Carmen Vortex Street, that is nuts. Like, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, so neither. yeah, I can imagine that back in 1959, you're like the prosecutor he's not like a jack of all trades so he doesn't know that you know and he's definitely not studying this and it's not really being studied that much anyway so now we're going to just kind of recreate the events of february 1st and the second the middle of the night and just kind of give you a better idea of what the events that took place that led to the death of all nine of these hikers so they set up their tent like like we said their slope is not steep enough for an avalanche but it's above Timberline, so it's exposed to the elements and it's a challenge they were looking for. So they they set up in a place that they knew was going to be a challenge, as was their routine. Zena and Layuda are the first inside the tent to begin setting things up as needed. They patch holes. I know that there was some jackets found stuffed in some holes they thought was odd, but that's how they would like patch holes in a temporary way. So they patched some holes. They arranged the empty bags along the floor for insulation. As they're doing that, Sasha and Kolia finished securing the integrity of the outside of the tent. And Igor, Dorshenko, Kolivatov, Yorgi, Rustic go inside to take off boots and their boots and their jackets. They're arranging them around the floor to dry. And as they're doing this, the winds start to pick up. The people that are inside the tent, they begin to eat dinner and stretch out. And Kolya and Sasha come inside. They start to play catch up with everybody on dinner because they were outside securing the tent. So they're a little behind and they're still wearing their outer clothes, which was explain why they were found with more clothes on. The group decides not to assemble the stove, either to conserve firewood uh, for the trek up the mountain or perhaps because something that was going on outside was becoming increasingly alarming to them, meaning the winds and whatnot. So over the past hour, the winds are picking up speed as they move over the dome of the mountain and while the group is used to the haunting cry of mountain winds the winds that are outside at this on this night are roaring and they're closer to a series of freight trains coming down the hill which i can only imagine what you would think that was i don't know we will try to find audio on that i we didn't have any well i didn't have any luck last night looking for it but no if you've ever even stood close to a train it's deafening the sound it made yeah so so imagine being in a tent yeah. on the side of a mountain and that's going by you just like one after the other i mean 
That is so terrifying. I mean, who knows what you would think that was? So as I said, the hikers know nothing of this phenomenon. And when their bodies begin to respond to it, they have no idea what's happening to them at all. So their heads begin to pound. They're all struck with the same migraine. They have this like indeterminate feeling of anxiety that's rapidly worsening until it becomes full-blown terror. By the time the winds outside reach the infrasonic threshold, they are no longer anxious as they are now just in deep, deep fear. The effect of the infrasonic frequencies probably temporarily robbed them of their rational minds and they begin operating under a more primal instinct, which is the flight response. So all they want to do is stop the discomfort. They just want to get away from it as mu- at all costs, no matter what that means, obviously, as they then begin to flee the tent. So Sasha and Kolya undo the latches on the front of the tent just enough at the bottom to be able to squeeze through. And then someone in the back of the tent grabs a knife and hacks away at it, trying to get make a hole in order for them to squeeze through. But because the tent walls are frozen with condensation, it takes multiple stabs to get through the canvas. So they make an opening just big enough to push through. And then one by one, they fly into the darkness. At this time, the moon had not risen yet, and it would not rise until 3 a.m. So they're on a mountain in this horrible windstorm and in complete utter pitch black darkness insufficiently dressed obviously the hikers are just looking for relief from the torment that hijacked their bodies inside the tent unfortunately they were only escaping one pain for another so they can't see it but the wind is tearing off the mountain in tornadoes in like twin file lines down the mountain like a little army they barrel past the hikers at 40 miles per hour the internal wind rotation is between 113 and 157 miles per hour that's crazy. It's the equivalent of an F2 tornado, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, The tornadoes grow in size. They're like 100 feet wide and 130 feet tall. In addition to the audible roar, they're also generating the infrasonic frequencies that have been wreaking havoc on these hikers' minds. They are in little danger of being blown away, though, because the tornado is passing at a substantial distance. The group is separated early on in the pitch black night with wind at their backs. They can't really hear each other speaking. Uh, In perfect conditions, voices travel about 60 feet, but you can only imagine imagine that all these noises that are being made and the wind being so strong it just doesn't allow them for to be able to really hear each other at all so as they near the tree line the psychotropic effects begin to slightly wear off and it begins to occur to them what they've done deep horror sets in as they as the cold begins to pierce them and they realize that they abandoned their shelter they don't know how to get back up and they can't see anything and they're really poorly dressed and prepared for this. They have no idea where they are in relation to their tent. They're roughly about 300 yards from their tent and they have divided into separate groups of four, three, and two. The hikers likely... 300 yards away from your tent doesn't seem like a big deal, but again, it's freezing cold. It's pitch black dark. And so I've been on a bunch of hunts and hikes with my husband. And if you look down for even a second and you're still moving, every time you look up, the scenery changes, but you could still be walking in that same straight line. It is very easy to become lost and disoriented in the in the wilderness, especially under these insane circumstances. Oh, yeah. So yeah. So this is, plus it's uphill. It's just like such a recipe for disaster. Exactly. Ugh. There's no landmarkers, nothing. No, and the you know 300 yards up a hill in that snow. Some of those spots were like 
were so deep. Like, so, you know, you're not just walking on top of snow. Like, you're having to actually trudge through snow that's at your knees, at your thigh level. I mean, it is laborious. Yeah. So they realize that fighting the wind all the way back up to the slope to their tent is impossible. The only hope they have is to keep going with the wind at their backs deeper into the trees and focus on surviving until the sun comes up. At this point, symptoms of hypothermia have already arrived. Um, It doesn't take long. So at this point, their heart rate and breathing is slowing. And over the next few hours, delirium is going to be brought on by the extreme cold. Yorgi and Dorshinko follow a path south, which leads them across the, the river toward the woods, but they encounter deep snow in one of the river's tributaries. So they move along the stream bed until they reach the cedar tree where they were found. Kolya injures himself, likely on a rock beneath the snow, which I imagine would be very easy, very easily ha- would happen in, especially when you can't see anything. He loses his flashlight and is then unable to walk. So then Sasha and Kolivatov carry him in the general direction of the trees. But because they can't see and have no idea where they're going, as I just said, without warning, they encounter that 24 foot precipice and tumble into the rock-lined ravine below as they're carrying Kolya. Kolya and Layuda is also with them, but not carrying anyone. So Kolya, Layuda, and Sasha hit the rocks with a massive force, sustaining grave chest injuries, and Kolya's skull is smashed on the rocks. Kolivatov manages to escape serious injury, perhaps because Kolya cushioned his fall as he was carrying him. So he sees a glow in the distance of his friend's fire, and he attempts to reach them, going 450 feet in the snow in the direction of the flame and bare feet. So he makes it there, and when he reaches the tree, he finds that Yorji and Dorshinko are unconscious. In addition to not stoking the fire, the two men have let their arms fall into the fire pit to warm themselves and their clothes and skin are charred. The effects of hypothermia had already killed them. So Kolovatov at that point, his only thought was how to save the three fallen friends that had fallen off that precipice. And so he takes out his knife and he begins to cut away the warmest parts of Yorji and Dorshinko's clothing, leaving the remaining clothes in scraps and shreds. By the time he arrives back to his three friends are barely alive. He uses he uses the sweater to wrap Leuda's feet, but she soon loses consciousness and eventually dies from her internal injuries. Kolya succumbs to brain hemorrhaging, and Sasha is the only one alive, so Kolivatov lifts the injured man, but is unable to get beyond the edge of the ravine. They both collapse, clutching each other as they fall into unconsciousness. Then Igor, Rustic, and Zina become separated. Igor settles into the tree-lined ravine and succumbs to hypothermia as he clutches onto that birch sap and Rustic falls on some stones, fracturing his skull. So Zena, she injures herself on a large rock, perhaps breaking her nose and causing the blood to run down her face as she attempts to crawl back to the tent, but she loses consciousness as she's crawling back and dies of hypothermia. At 3 a.m., the crescent moon rises and all the hikers are scattered in various positions of intense struggle and surrender and all have died at this point. So that... It's the most plausible theory. Yes. It makes the most sense. I mean, it's it's not a sexy theory. It's not aliens or some man-eating yeti but totally explains what happened so we were discussing this case before we actually did it and was thinking well is this going to be boring if you're a science nerd and you like forensics and solving cases actually this is very interesting especially when you look into that carmen street vortex stuff watch videos on it it's just such a powerful strange natural occurrence it's it's mind-blowing oh yeah i mean it 
uh, at first I was a little like, oh man, well, you know, is that this is not the supernatural uh, story that it is made out to be quite often. So I was a little nervous, but the more I read into it and the more I started learning, I was like, man, this is, this is creepier than... I mean, if you take, if you really listen to that, the recreation of events and you don't put yourself in that scenario and think that that sounds like one of the most terrifying things that you could ever experience. I don't know. You might, you might be the bravest person I know. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, it's one thing to even imagine getting lost from just a family camp out and you went to go maybe collect some firewood and you kind of lost your way. How terrifying it is. Like you're alone. You don't know your way back. Will they ever find me? This is that times like a thousand yeah it really is so it was a a really crazy weather event really that happened that has all sorts of bizarre details like we said we'll try to find some audio similar to this because i'm sure i'm sure probably a tornado would give you some idea but this is like a series of tornadoes one after the other and yeah it's really sad that they chose this camping spot as a way to make their following day easier and it ended up just being like the perfect situation to create the this phenomenon phenomena 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 to create this, I know, to create this phenomena. And who would have thought, you know, I mean, that's just so bizarre. So my thing, I was like, well, now somebody needs to go. And so did Shai. Shai said this, we both had this exact same thought was that somebody needs to go and try to see if they can capture this happening in this spot because we know the exact location of the tent and I know that you can't predict it, but maybe there would be, and obviously, I'm not really too keen on going and, do, and doing that myself, no. but somebody this would have to be like a heavily controlled, monitored experiment, you know, because again, those those infrasonic sounds do cause all this hysteria, and it makes me wonder like how many instances people had blamed, you know, supernatural ghosts or aliens, right? Uh, when you know, like a group, of, you know, there's, there's been some instances where a group of people will experience like the same type of migraine and then get bloody noses too. Yeah, but who's to say it was? wasn't just some freak accident of some of this like low frequency vibration that us humans have no way of hearing yeah it's definitely definitely cool i mean it's cool it's cool to learn about but it's also kind of scary because you don't really know what's happening so i sat there and i was like oh i wonder how many times that i felt like super nauseous all of a sudden for no reason whatsoever and it was actually like some weird infrasonic vibration or something that was going you know you had mentioned some doctor's office or something and it was like the ac unit yeah. that had okay yeah it was like okay it was like a fan in this doctor's office his him and his colleagues were getting super sick like super duper sick to where it would last days and it after doing some investigation he came to find out that it was a broken fan in this ac unit that was causing this infrasonic frequency that was making them all super ill and then another so definitely interesting explanation that is what i think we probably have concluded that really happened on the dyatlov pass incident so that is that is it for this week everybody we hope you enjoyed that episode and learned some science yeah and and maybe don't feel like crying or screaming or throwing (laughs) yourself into the wind from the conclusion here because i definitely i personally needed a little break yeah 
from the, the sadness. Uh, people don't realize like when you put so much research and heart into these cases and become passionate about them, it can be really emotionally draining. Yeah. So we'll have to throw in some fun episodes here and there. Definitely. And not to say that the death of nine hikers in Russia is fun, no. but it's a little more light. You know, it made me sad when I was done, but at the same time, it's I think just from the amount of time that has passed, it kind of allows it to be a little bit less yeah. impactful on my my mental state. So anyway, but regardless, we're, we will continue to bring you the hard-hitting stories as well because that's why we did this. Yes. So anyway, again, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Anybody that's given us reviews or or given us stars on iTunes, we really appreciate because it really does help us out. Yep. So uh, thank you, everyone out there, and Creep It Real. We'll talk to you later. Bye.